Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. around the world are flocking to the island nation of Krakoa for safety, security, to be part of the First Mutant Society. Only Professor X has been assassinated by a strike team that somehow infiltrated Krakoa's defense sensors. Okay, well, yes and no. You know, it's kind of funny because they're like, oh, this defense team somehow infiltrated the defense sensors. And like, I think it would just be more polite if in the previously they would say, by wearing a dead lady. So of course, that means this is We Are Krakoa. I'm Nico. I'm Dylan. Kyle. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive the experience. Maybe or, or maybe not like Domino. Yeah, I thought so much of the stuff we read was so incredible and that it was just gripping in a lot of ways because we have 12 issues of the Dawn of X. We only ever had 12 issues of House and Powers. We have as much new status quo as we had issues building it. And I don't recognize the X-Men from six months ago. This was such a whirlwind to come back to. This has been completely transformative for the entire family of mutants. It's it's just been really eye-opening. The leaps that they've made made with the character growth here. And I think character growth is kind of like the magic phrase. The thing that struck me the most about everything in this read-through was the goal was to keep convincing us we knew nothing that was going on. Like, every issue was like a weird punch in the face. And Jonah, I imagine you were probably the most unsettled by the number of characters that were just sort of introduced without any explanation. Yeah, they kind of just popped up like, here I am once again. I'm not torn into pieces. Did you just start singing behind these Krakoan eyes? No. As far as I'm concerned, Krakoa Clarkson is the musician laureate of Krakoa right there with Dazzler. She's the Lorax? Yes. <laughs> Krakoa Clarkson is the Lorax, and we're all so lucky for her talk show. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Black Tom Cassidy is the Lorax. He literally speaks to the trees. <laughs> yeah, they want us to feel bad for him. He's all like, speaking Black Tom, in third person. all sad. Black Tom, not a good day. Black Tom, what is happening? <laughs> this book is being promoted that it's a really good jumping on point for X fans and it gives you a lot of history and you can catch up pretty quickly but I think I would have appreciated like an editor's blurb like they do in the 80s of like who's this character because it really would have just given just a name honestly it's all you really need to do is give a name and you can give nothing else and people will be like oh okay and then they'll decide if they want to go see more of that character or not well I know even when I buy the physical issue I read digital Jonah I know you prefer to read digital Dylan Kyle whether you buy the digital or the physical which do you prefer to read? Physical, for me. I just like having the book in my hand. It really depends for me. For new stuff, I really, really enjoy physical. But if I'm going back, I don't want to be hunting through boxes at my local comic store trying to 
hope that I find what I want. So I actually prefer digital in that way. Yeah, and for the fact that at least three-fourths of us do regularly read in digital, I kind of find it impossible that the Marvel app wouldn't be able to have a click on this character and bring up information on them. Even if it's just on that front intro page, we are definitely at a place where these apps can be interactive. I know that half of my apps want permissions to do shit that I would never give them permission to do. So I don't think it's that weird that Marvel could build in some sort of shield database for some of these characters. I know I'm asking for a lot, but it would be a really great way to control the Wikipedia of it. This week, the second issue of New Mutants came out. We got to see our lovely young adult teen acting crew in orange jumpers. Kyle, I know when we read the first issue, you had talked about how you were excited about New Mutants when it was getting its own Dawn of X title, but after the first issue, I feel like you didn't really care for it. So what were your thoughts after the second issue? This second issue completely turned things around for me. It felt like the New Mutants that I was familiar with. They felt a little more on character, especially once Cannonball showed up, and it just, I don't know, it felt like home. And it's funny because I felt that this was also a huge improvement, and Hickman has experience writing at least Sam and Birdo, so I feel like maybe it was the added benefit of having another character he knows how to write very well back in his pocket that maybe like picked things back up in the writing. This issue we also got to see, besides a salamander-looking attorney, we got to see a lot of Shi'ar history and characters like Gladiator. Jonah, with you being the newest person to X-Books, what are your thoughts? I know in the regular Access for Podcast show, you guys had just left space. What are your thoughts about returning to space in the future of your readings? The first thing I would love to say is, goddamn, that Oracle redesign is absolutely beautiful. Personally, she's one of my favorite Imperial Guards because she gets a lot of screen time because she's a purple psychic. It reminds me of when Storm got a redesign to be much more badass, so I'm really excited and happy about that. Okay. Going back to space, I think makes a decent amount of sense for the new mutants. Kinda. I don't know if it's actually the best to put two important characters to Krakoa government in space so far away from Krakoa, especially Doug, and I believe it's Birdo who comments on it that Doug is the only person who is able to actually communicate with Krakoa at this point, and I find it really weird they wanted to keep him separated through a very large distance, so I'm really excited to see the different alien forms, the different space missions, what they can do with it, because with space you can do whatever you want, and I think having the non-limitations on creativity is really cool, but I'm just really confused as to why they want Ileana and Doug so far away from Krakoa when they seem like they should be there because they have very important roles. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That Having them so far away from everybody else almost makes this feel like it doesn't really belong in the Dawn of X family to me. I mean, there's a wealth of X-Men and a wealth of mutants, and they're really celebrating so many of them in such a big way, but there's only so many big names. You can only bring up so many people who have existed for 40 years before you're out of popular people who have existed for 40 years. We can dig into the background and we can find somebody like the character Alchemy, who was a fan creation that won a contest and made it into some issues of X Factor. Sure, I don't think anybody's clamoring for Alchemy to come back. And if they are, sure, but they're not going to get a solo. Magic was one of those Holy Grail characters. She was kind of in that Uncle Ben, Bruce Wayne's parents family where... 
Never bring them back unless you're going to bring them back big. Only do it if you're going to Bucky. And once she came back, it was just a speed train. I remember Jason Aaron saying that she was one of the only characters he lost out on to Kieran Gillen for his run. I'm not shocked that Jonathan Hickman would want to write her over in the pages of New Mutants where he's co-writer right now. Like Kyle mentioned earlier, this issue brought everyone's favorite Hayseed back to New Mutants. Nico, I know that Cannonball is one of your favorite characters. How happy were you to see him return and all his bromance with Berto? It was an interesting role for him because one of the things that Sam has never gotten to do is Sam has never gotten to be the good times guy. Anytime Sam gets upgraded to the X-Men, it's so that he can be constantly reminded that he's trying to prove himself. Like that is the core element of every Sam gets moved up to the X-Men. And then every time he gets, you know, shushed back down to the new mutants, it's always in this very sort of, okay, you're a new mutant again now, but you're the leader and everybody just sort of accepts it. And he has this weight on him. It's a burden for him to be cannonball of the new mutants. Here, he kind of got to be Super Guardian's husband, and he got to have a lightness about him, a warmth that I think belied why Xandra was able to play the role she was able to play because Sam's always played that sort of dutiful son who follows the rules you know Sam is the one who commits and never leaves the farm and he helps ironic <laughs> Sam's the one <laughs> but in this case Zandra is the one who is stepping up and she's the one who is like this is my goal and this is my purpose in life now and Sam gets to have fun in a way we've never seen Sam have fun it's interesting because Sam is a Southern Americana mirror of the gentle Midwest that is Cyclops. And they both get to celebrate having different kinds of joy in adulthood thanks to the Dawn of X. And it's really changed both of their leadership styles. Speaking of leadership styles, the end of this issue brought back a character that I know Nico and I both love who hardly gets any type of love. And the reason I brought up leadership is because Zandra is going to be advised by her aunt, who is one of the X-Men's greatest villains and I think one of my favorite X-Men villains, Deathbird. What was everyone's thoughts on that last page with the splash page of Deathbird? Bad, no, bad. My first thoughts were, wow, Nico's gonna cream his pants. <laughs> oh no, I mean, I was thrilled. I loved it so much. I was so happy. Oh my god. But like, bad plan. Bad plan. Deathbird is always bad plan. Yeah, I don't see this working out great. But hey, you know, we did see the cover of New Mutant 7 and everybody seems to be celebrating and happy so it can't be that bad, right? Right. It's not like the New Mutants have ever had a false sense of security. What have I said before? The New Mutants aren't allowed to be happy. No, they aren't. The New Mutants yearbook superlatives are all things like most deadest, <laughs> least alivest. I definitely agree. This plan to have Deathbird advise Zandra, it's, I see it going bad really quickly. I can't see it going well. Well, I really did appreciate seeing the friendship between Sam and Birdo and Sam interacting with the new mutants here. I felt like this was the Birdo show featuring Sam and some other characters that just happened to not have dialogue. (laughs) And while I think it could work for some books like we talked about in Excalibur where it felt like the Betsy Braddock book, I think that makes sense there because it's a whole story about Betsy 
she's becoming Captain Britain again and trying to save her brother. That's fine to focus on her there. But here, New Mutants, especially from what I've read, and though it's not much, it's always about these, and I'm hesitant to say kids, kids interacting with one another and them navigating the troubles and tribulations and trials of being mutant young adults to adults now. I really wish there was more interaction with the other characters. I felt like Mondo, Rain, and Chamber got the real short end of the stick here. Even Danny got a real short end of the stick here, and I really wish that there was a little more interaction between all of them to help me get that sense of camaraderie, friendship, and family that the New Mutants kind of do very well. And it's funny. So something that I've brought to Jonah is Project Runway. And something Jonah's brought to my life is cooking shows. So we watch competitive cooking and competitive fashion shows a lot with Kevo. One of my favorite things in the world is when Jonah goes, they're safe, they're not going home. They've gotten no focus. Producers cut. And like, it cracks me up. But I know nothing significant is currently going going to happen to Chamber, to Mondo, to Danny, because they're not getting any spotlight. So I know they're not going to get any attention because Chekhov's gone. So in some ways, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. These characters are going to be in the background until they've just been in the background for so long that they became the background characters. It's part of the complex, winding way of trying to write a comic that needs to coexist in a shared universe. From New Mutants number two by John Hickman, Rod Rays, and Travis Lanham to X-Force number two by Percy Kassara and White, which, okay, 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 you all fucked with me. You fucked with me, Marvel, and I'll tell you why you fucked with me. You put Quentin Choir on that beautiful variant of issue number one, and, and it was Quentin and Logan and Gene, and the current Hank, and I just Photoshop him in my head with, like, Nicholas Holt, <laughs> and I find myself so frustrated that my precious QQ wasn't in the first issue of X-Force. So then I crack open X-Force number two, like a cold brewski, and I'm like, okay, okay, I'm gonna read this. Why is Magneto making me cry? <laughs> I don't wanna cry. Oh, right, his best friend's dead. Oh my God, I guess Xavier's really dead. I guess he's just not coming back in the first page of this. It wasn't a fake out, and even if it is a fake out, it's a fake out they're manipulating to an incredible suspension of disbelief. One of the things I love the most about the suspension of disbelief is that we've entered the age of the Dawn of X, which represents mutant immortality. And that's supposed to be the key epicenter of this story. But we're immediately met with visions of Domino flayed and then used as breadcrumbs. So the whole idea of mutant immortality is immediately just shit out the airlock by X-Force number one. It's this insane confrontation of what it means to be immortal, but what it means to survive. The idea behind some of the greatest stories in X-Men history is the confrontation of immortality in the face of mortality. Take a look at X-Force by Milligan and Allred. It was called Famous Mutant Immortal because the idea was they were all chasing immortality through fame, but were constantly met with death. Dark Phoenix Saga, the phoenix is an eternal creature, but Jean's death still had resonance. And that brings me to the realization of the layers of immortality in this book. Logan just doesn't die. He can't stay dead when he does die. At one point, Mark Guggenheim made canon in a particularly unusual arc from Civil War with Humberto Ramos called Vendetta. Wolverine was able to generate from a single drop of blood and his complete adamantium skeleton. Death has never really been a thing that stopped Wolverine, sort of like popularity has never been a thing that stopped Dazzler. So, I guess my question <laughs> is... <Poor> Dazzler. <laughs> <laughs> if Wolverine's never been able to really be dead anyway, how is this any different? I don't really know. Well, I mean, they're 
are the instances where his healing factor has been disabled that have caused him to to die but i mean that even that doesn't really answer that question so there was an arc where wolverine it might have actually been a one-shot issue and i'm trying to remember who wrote it and who drew it because i can see it and there was a black and white variant of it and it was gorgeous and i feel like it came at the end of the malar run where wolverine it was revealed fights the devil every time he dies and fights his way back to living, but now won't be able to do that anymore. So that was a way he was able to die for a little while. Then there was that whole killable months to live thing by Paul Cornell, which had art by Alan Davis, who disappeared halfway through it. So they replaced him with Ryan Stegman, who disappeared halfway through it. So they replaced it with a lot of fill-ins. Then they decided he died a totally different way in the (laughs) next month. I mean, Logan has a long history of being dead. How is, you know, it's such a weird question because Logan's pushed to like really dark places in this. How did you feel about where he went in his rage in this era of rebirth, Kyle? It felt like a Wolverine that I'd enjoy following. It feels like he is willing to do anything it takes to stop what's happening. But at the same time, the fact that he's like still mentoring Quentin a bit makes me kind of happy. I'm the biggest Quentin Logan son daddy shipper on earth. Like that is one of my favorite paternal relationships in the entire Marvel universe. (laughs) I love it so much. I completely agree. And one of the things that's really important is Quentin represents young, macho, egotistic immortality. Kids who think they can't die so they drive 115 miles an hour. Quentin Quire drives 280 miles per hour. He thinks that the Autobahn is for faggots and can't quite figure out why people wouldn't try and drive even faster. Quentin, one of my all-time favorite characters, and I no, he's not supposed to be. Quentin Quire is a sad little fuckboy. That is his lot forever because Quentin Quire will never get out of his own way. And the closest he ever comes is when Logan shows him the light, but he is so goddamn blinded. And you know what? It's actually because of a lot of the sort of phallic masculinity that Aaron infused into the Phoenix mythos when he infused it into Quentin Quire that inherently changes the idea of Quentin's ability to grow, right? Because now he's linked to this thing that never can grow and he's always bound to this idea. So Logan coming in and trying to protect this thing that represents something that he couldn't protect in the woman that he loves is an important story for me, for Quentin, for sure, and for Logan, two of my all-time favorites, and it's just such a pleasure to see how they are together. And, and you know, Jonah, from one of my favorites to one of your favorites, this issue was pretty stellar for Jean Grey, who got, like, maybe the most beautiful splash page in the run so far, but there was also that incredibly tender moment from Magneto, X-Force, for a book that's supposed to be about the new age of and tumble x-men is showing a lot of emotional deference to some really classic characters that represent the 80s mutant mania and the 70s x-men explosion what was it like seeing this rebranded iteration under the krakoan banner I full-heartedly agree that Jean got one of the best splash pages ever. If there's anything that Jean is getting out of this book, besides a new role, which we will probably see in the next issue, she gets great and beautiful art. But what I love about these tender moments, whether it's Magneto mourning over Charles, whether it's Jean showing her vulnerability to Beast, how she's scared, and how the clock is running out, it really is a good juxtaposition to a very gritty book. It's a way to keep these characters grounded and make sure we have moments to breathe. 
I talked about the last time we've talked about X-Force 1, where it felt like we never had a moment to breathe. It was one thing on top of one another. But here I think they slowed down the pace much better and were really able to understand the emotional turmoil that all these characters are going through with Charles Xavier's death. I think it's really important that we do understand the emotions well and understand where these characters are coming from so we can better relate to the character, to the story, and really feel what these artists are trying to tell with our art. I was really happy to see Magneto, Jean, Beast, Sage, everyone show a level of vulnerability, except for, you know, Quentin Quire, who had, I don't know how many zingers for Wolverine, literally line after line. It was like listening to Sophia go after Dorothy. It was intense. <laughs> Even he had his own moment of vulnerability once he realized that there was a psychic dampener there. Oh my god, when he couldn't get his psychic shotgun. Oh, he's my favorite. He shouldn't be. Oh, he's so problematic. We have to leave. You have fists! <laughs> <laughs> So Jonah, I'm going to redirect the same question to you that I asked Kyle. In an age where immortality is supposed to be the status quo, Jean Grey has never played by the rules of life and death, ever. What does it mean for you to see Jean Grey now not just be able to come back from the dead herself, but it seems know how to bring others back? Okay, there's one thing I really want to talk about, different forms of immortality, something that Nico touched upon. There are physical immortalities so shown in Jean and Wolverine. Wolverine basically not being able to die. Jean being brought back, whether it's from her own volition or not, she's brought back a lot. We have Quentin who has the mentality of immortality. I know that rhymed, I didn't think it would. The idea that when you don't have enough life experiences, you think you're on top of the world and nothing can topple you. It's exactly what Quentin thinks. He's such a powerful mutant that he doesn't think anything can topple him, and he was forced to face that, as Kyle said, when he realized there was a psychic barrier. Charles Xavier right now is representing the ideology of immortality. It's the idea that as long as your name is spoken, as long as your thoughts and what you believed in still lives, you're not truly dead. And that's kind of what they're trying to do on Krakoa, is to make sure Charles's mission, dream, everything, is still being heard. In that vein, even if Charles isn't physically there, Charles is still alive. I think specifically this, I think back to that panel from the Phoenix Saga, when Jean first became the Phoenix, of her talking to her ex-roommate, or now ex-roommate, Misty Knight, and saying to Misty, do you know what it's like to die and be brought back to life? It's kind of like Jean is now Misty. She has to be faced with that question of watching other people die and being brought back and not understanding what that will really mean for her and what that means for the people around them. It's a really weird and interesting confrontation that Jean's going to have to deal with, with life for at least most mutants, that death isn't that permanent. Love it, love it, love it. Which, of course, brings me to the hardest to pin down part of this story. The body horror is certainly unsettling. And I'm usually a pretty big proponent of body horror as a storytelling device when it's used well, but there was something unsettling. The idea of being a mutant was made safer by being given Krakoa, a world body to protect the mutant body, but the physical mutant body is being torn apart. There is a fridging element to this that I'm not crazy about. Domino was on the cover of the first issue like she was a member of this team, not like she was literally skin tags. Dylan, this is a betrayal of everything we love about Domino, even if it's her being used in a unique way. I even wonder if they want her skin because it's lucky. It's lucky they would get through the barrier. So I gotta know, what do you feel about literally turning one of our favorite mutants inside out to betray the X-Men? It is a little jarring, especially the last page of this issue, to see Domino so disfigured. And I didn't think about 
the fact that maybe her skin was lucky too for the reverse. It's pretty horrifying, but it's Domino. Domino, I think, will most likely be fine, and I don't even think we have to have her be resurrected. It's Domino. She's gotten through. I want to say worse, but I feel like that last page is a pretty awful indicator for her future, maybe? I don't know. I think there's future covers that have her on it, so I think she'll be fine. But like you mentioned, the rest of the book was pretty gory as well, especially some of the scenes with Jean trying to figure out whatever information they could from the reverse. I think this issue for me actually showed how far both Wolverine and Jean would go to try to fix this problem. I think it's like the second page with them once again showing Xavier dead. I understand that it could seem like a bit much, but I feel like the artist and the story of this book are wanting to show that House of X and Dawn of X and the beginning issues of these books made it seem like X-Men or mutant kind were going to be perfectly okay. And that's not the case. And I just want to throw out there real quick that second page where it shows all the mutants standing around that Xavier, I have to mention this because it's me. Warpath is in that group of mutants and this is the first time we've seen Warpath in Dawn of X and I'm very happy. <laughs> I have a lot of opinions on where we're going to see Warpath come the X-Corps title, so definitely keep a keen ear to our Danger Room Files episodes, where we're covering some of the less-known canon and titles through the years. Also check out for the next episode, where we take a look at the best body horrors of X-Force 2. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, I'm going to ask you the same question I've asked everyone else. Immortality meant one thing in X-Men, and now it even means something different. Like, they even have to resurrect Cerebro in a matter of speaking. What the fuck good? is this immortality if everything is dead anyway? Ooh, I'm gonna be like Kyle and say that's a really hard question to answer. This book in particular, X-Force, especially with the first issue killing off Xavier, I feel like that's kind of a question that can't really be answered because I feel like X-Force is going to be very much like House of X and Dawn of X with lots of questions. Even though Magneto and Xavier aren't really on the main roster of this book, I feel like this book is very much about the two of them. So with the two of them being kind of leads of this title, again, it's hard to answer the question because I feel like there's lots of secrets and plans and ideas that Magneto and Xavier have in play. And the reason I am saying it that way is because I still kind of believe the theory that I mentioned in our episode about the first issue, I feel like Xavier may have set up this death of his to showcase something to humans that he wanted to. I agree. I really think there's a bigger picture at play here because they're all still keeping Moira a secret. And I want to remind everybody that there's all that stuff in Powers and House about how the great mutant leadership disappears. And I can't help but notice that two of the great leaders we need have already retreated into the background. Oh. Guys, essentially, the X-Men are being led by Magneto and Apocalypse right now. Yeah, that's, um... I... And nobody's saying <laughs> shit. Sinister has power. This is... Guys, Sinister has power. <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. You should be! <laughs> <laughs> no. Were you happy to see Farrell? <laughs> I'm going to be real. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it all on the line, right? This is going to be Gavin Turek for a moment, right? And I think, frequently, I have emotional responses to characters that are programmed into me from a time before I really understood what I thought. I talked about it extensively in one of my all-time favorite episodes of this show. I was so happy to do it. The Marvels of Marvel Girl was one of the most exciting episodes we got to record because it's basically 45 minutes of me talking about Jean Grey. And... 
one of the things we said is I can't figure out where my love of this character came into reality. At what point did the pretty redhead toy that I had become this person that I so identified with conceptually? And I kind of have to wonder then how many characters I dislike for the same reason. But look how beautifully resurrecting Quanin turned out when following Claremont's departure, the retcon of Psylocke into not just body reshaped, but a separate bro- a separate body with a brain transplant. That was not what Claremont wrote. So for 50 issues, that wasn't what happened. And then one day they just decided, no, it was a body swap. It wasn't a reshaping, even though Spiral does reshape it. And, but what we've gotten from it, this new amazing British Betsy and Quanin. You know what? I'm glad that I was proven wrong by some very talented writers who knew better what to do with a character than I would have ever understood. Because they made me not just like Quanin, they made me hungrily love Quanin. And if they can do that with a character that I literally thought was a mistake and they can turn her into positive representation, I truly believe that anything's possible and maybe I should give Feral another <laughs> shot. Speaking of Quanin. Speaking of Quanin, let's take a look at Fallen Angels number two, which is basically her book, but it's more than just her book. This book is about transformation of who you are and self-identity. Well, you might think this is a heavy-handed metaphor, Really, a lot of these characters are caterpillars turning into butterflies. They're evolving, they're growing, and they're changing who they once were. It's not just about learning who you are as a person. It's a lot also about what you're taught and how that shapes you from becoming a student to a master. And as Quanin says, masters are slaves, which if you don't understand, my take of that line is that when you are a master of information, you are a slave to that information because it guides you every which way. No matter what you're doing, it's something that's always going to be in your mind is how do you do it the way you were taught? How do you do it based on the information you have? You're a slave to what you know. This book has been really, really interesting and I want to give a little bit of a shout out to the creative team who made this book possible. Brian Hill, Sisman Krudowski, and Frank Diarmada. Kyle, I want to ask you about the flashback scenes we got of Quanin as an assassin. How did you resonate with those scenes seeing that even in her past, she wasn't the perfect assassin? We saw her let a target go what did that mean to you? How does that relate to the idea of who you once were to who you are now? I thought that it was a very, very interesting direction for them to take the character. I was not expecting this former hand assassin to have sympathy for her targets. And the fact that she just let this woman go, it just, I wasn't expecting it at all. I wasn't expecting to see that hope. Uh, not hope. I wasn't expecting to see that almost softness in her at that point in her life. Kyle, I'm there with you. I'm such a big Electra fanboy. So as somebody who's like Lady Gaga for Bradley Cooper over Electra, I completely understand being almost like emotionally betrayed by a member of the hand letting someone go, but it works for me. The idea that that's why it was this woman and she's this assassin and everything she's putting herself through to better herself. Oh my god, I could just melt. And it's really interesting because we got to see a couple of the tenets of the hand and what it means to be the one. A lot of what it spoke about was you just have to listen. You don't have emotions. There is no you. You're a one. Your responsibility is 
what you're told. You don't have your own dreams, desires, because that's weakness. That is what makes you not the one. That's not your duty and that's not your destiny. Now, I found it very interesting that Dazzler was included on the list of characters on the character preview page, but only had a minor role in a very short scene speaking with Quanin. Dylan, I know you're a massive Dazzler fan, and I want to know, do you think Dazzler would make a great addition to this cast because she herself has gone through a lot of changes in her own identity, whether it be entertainer, superhero, mixing both of those, Judge Carter Blair's daughter, whatever it may be. Do you think Dazzler would bring a good perspective of the idea of changing yourself? Or do you think there's a better character that represents that? I got a kid in Nixon myself in here really quick. Everything's frozen. I'm <laughs> sucking on a pacifier. You left out the most important thing to call Dazzler, Lois's sister. Everyone, please <laughs> resume. Um, to, to answer your question, Jonah, uh, I actually, when I saw like an official preview and it mentioned that Dazzler was going to be in this book, I thought it was a really odd fit. I think I'm about 50-50 on whether she would be a good choice for this book. Like you mentioned, she has gone through a lot of changes. She's probably been a, in a cocoon and became a butterfly like 12 different times with everything that you mentioned and her trips to Mojo World and her being a singer, not being a singer and becoming a version of Thor. She has gone through a lot, but I feel like the book's fit is more for some dark characters like Laura and Nate. I will say it would be really interesting if Dazzler did show up more, mainly because Allison has a huge friendship with Betsy, and I think it would be really interesting to see what Allison's friendship with Quanin could be. And, you know, one of the things that's hard is that we're talking about the future of this book when it doesn't have one. The book is no longer solicited after issue six, and the writer has said that it's due to rising commitments in his other work, and he has a very cool idea to tell the next part of the story, and a cool way to do it, but it does not seem like it's going to be an ongoing title. It kind of makes me wonder why Marvel doesn't just openly admit that there's no such thing as an ongoing series anymore. There are just, like limited ongoings and a lot of minis very few things like the fact that jason aaron's avengers is at 27 is mind-blowing i can't believe they let anything get that high that's crazy to me so i feel like i hope dazzler intersects with the future of this book because i hope this book has a future speaking of the future we're learning a little bit about what these characters will be learning quanin's going to be learning what it means to be the master she was taught by the hand but here she has to teach laura and nathan and that's something I think is going to be really interesting for her character, especially even though I don't know a lot about her. Having to become the teacher from the student is always a big shift. Laura here, we got a part of what she's going to be learning in how to control her anger. I find it very fascinating that Laura wants to be able to control it to not be run by it, but we just saw Wolverine in X-Force let it take over to help protect him and Quentin. Nico, what do you think Cable's going to be learning within these issues? I don't have an idea of what the lessons uh, that will transform him into the butterfly are yet, but what do you hope is going to happen for this character? Get a pint of ice cream, get a vape pen, a glass of Chardonnay, a glass of Chardonnay, <laughs> a keg, whatever you gotta get. Put your feet up. Here's, here's how it's gonna go. The defining factor about Cable was that he was introduced to teach others. No matter what, Cable was introduced as an old man. That's the starting point on this, right? So if we're gonna backtrack where Marvel has wound up today, one of the things we need to take a look at is we need to take a look at how media disseminates. Anybody who knows me knows that I have a weird love of German movies. It's weird, I know, but my favorite film of all time is Metropolis by Fritz Lang. And Kevo has spent years 
was buying me Metropolis collectibles and I have the fullest cut on Blu-ray and I just love this movie more than life. And it is a movie that because of how it was cut, the plot had been lost to time essentially. But the visuals came to define hundreds of movies that followed, whether it was Charlie Chaplin's best works, Star Wars, even to this day, it influences everything. Blade Runner nearly took shots bit for bit. My Alien series was influenced by it. And Metropolis was such a beautiful, gripping visual film. It's literally where the droids in Star Wars come from. And no one knew the plot, so it's just these beautiful visuals that changed the world. And Deadpool and Cable are two characters that became popular based on an iconography. Deadpool has this more sinister take on... Deathstroke the Terminator mixed with Spider-Man. At the same time, Cable represents a muscular old man. Now, I know that's a weird thing to say, but if you look at early X-Force, it's dominated by these immense muscular old men and these sexy young women that hang on them, which I think in some ways represented the changing ages of the comic book industry. The older men that were plunking down the money on these books saw themselves, and the younger men saw the women they wanted, I think. But we have entire lines of comics now that are old man this and old man that. It's impossible that Cable wasn't taken from old man status. Everything's got an old man now. Old man Logan, old man Barton, old man Quill. It's a line of books. So to still have the guy who created that trope in Marvel, old man from the future goes to the future. Everyone we love and know is dead and the bits of it that his life interacts with are horrifying disaster versions, right? That started with Cable. And you know what? Peter David's future in Perfect Hulk, 100%. I don't want to discount a really valid work in the industry. But, you know, Days of Future passed. We went to it and came back. We went to it and came back. And it wasn't until after Cable was established that we started to do things like Days of the Future now. So I think what I'm looking for from Cable is a chance to be something other than the old man. Anytime we saw an alternate version of Cable, one of the most defining things was he was shown as young, but that was never our Cable. I'm looking forward to seeing a Cable who's able to learn instead of a Cable whose job it is to disseminate knowledge. I am a huge supporter of teachers always need to learn just as much from their students. You learn how to teach the next group of students better from every class you teach. But teachers need to remember what it's like to be on the powerless side of the desk, or the seemingly powerless side. Truly, the student has most of the power in a student-teacher dynamic. But it's important for educators to remember what it's like to be the educated in a direct, realistic application of the sense. And I think it's a journey for Cable to get back to being taught. We'd seen glimpses of it, we'd seen shines of it, whether it was the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, or it was some of the gorgeous Dayspring stuff that Jeff Loeb did. It's a really important story to see told in this character's timeline, and I couldn't be more excited. These are three people who've had their identities alienated, and he's going to have a chance to learn from some strong women, which is pretty in line. He's learned from Red Dayspring, who's Jean. He's learned from the mother Ascani, who's Rachel. So he's had strong, powerful female figures in his life to guide him, and I like that that's continuing now. Thank you for coming to my Theodore discussion. <laughs> I like the idea that Quanon knows that she doesn't know everything, that she has stuff that while she can teach Cable and Laura, she also needs to learn stuff from them as well. And she also needs Dazzler there to act as a friend. She needs that, that connection to help learn to be a more rounded person, not to be this automaton that she was taught to be by the hand. 
You know, I think I might do a The Hand episode. I think I might just have to. And until we return to the Black Sarcophagus, it has been such a blast discussing the first 12 issues of The Dawn of X. I'm a little thrown because we don't have that map at the back. We had that list of the order they went. And Fallen Angels number two, you did not provide me with a numbers three through four. And now I feel very insecure about the intertwinedness of these books going forward. Anybody else getting the nerves? Yeah. What's coming out next week? Our next episode of We Are Krakoa is going to cover X-Men 3, Excalibur 3, and Marauders 3, provided there have been no changes to the shipping okay. schedule. Okay, I'm excited. And until we come back, Kyle, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me wandering around Bar Sinister, wondering where the drinks are. Or you can find me on Facebook at my Facebook group for all things X-Men called House of X. Or on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Not paying my space lawyer because he couldn't get me a, a non-guilty verdict. No, that's not true. You always pay your artists and your friends. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at my new handle, at Peak Jonah. That is at P-E-A-K-J-O-N-A-H. Nico, where can everybody find you? I Okay, so I was trying to make this face at Jonah because we're recording in the same room, and I was hoping I could convey the eyes Gene makes in that splash page, but like I realized that doesn't record. So you can find me sitting in the shame in the darkness, and you can find me all over this amazing network on shows like the other feeds of this show like 80s Mutant Mania The Danger Room Files 70s X Explosion or Thunder Bros don't forget to check out HTML where Kevo and I take a look at all sorts of movie franchises and media you can find me on Instagram at Nico Action. that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and you can check out my fabulous webcomic Kid Riot about the coolest ever queer Latino speedster at KidRiotComics.com guys this is my favorite hour of the week and I love sharing it with you and until we return to talk a little bit more crook Oh man, I can't even say talk more Grey Malkin. They don't, it's gone. Ah, oh, I feel betrayed. Until we return to my betrayal. See we'll see ya. And just a reminder, podcasting is not an audio-visual. <laughs> 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 that doesn't make any sense. <laughs>